This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best author interviews directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Here's one of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. We hope you enjoy it, and check our site on September 14th for our brand new show, PW Insider. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mario Marazzitti in the office. His new book is 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty. Hello, Mario. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a big opportunity. So, your book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, tell us about how the idea of the book came about, and also maybe about the format, like why the 13 Ways? Well, uh, it's been years that from Italy and internationally uh, I've been working on the issue of the death penalty and uh, and I could see that uh, uh, all the movement in the 90s practically did not exist as a movement, but it was pretty split. split. Uh, those for a moratorium, those for abolition thinking that those for in favor of a moratorium were like enemies almost. And uh, at the same time, there were specialists about execution specialist about Texas, specialist about uh, single issues, and so on. And at the same time, everyone was convinced that it's his own situation was completely different from any other parts of the world, that America had nothing to do with the rest of the world, and so on. And at the end of the day, I found myself that uh, the real need was to have uh, many different angles to look at the death penalty, because there is a big gray area, and uh, we must take seriously also the the opinion into account the opinion of those who back the use of the death penalty. But many times, uh, when you speak with these people, then they do not know many things, and they may change their mind if they know th- those things. Uh, and just to give you an, an example, uh, we spoke with millions of people just to write sign petitions and these millions of people at the beginning were maybe in favor and then they were not in favor so I thought that I have to give a gift to America and trying to give a, a small tool a small book to think about you'd say a small book I mean it's, it's physically very small you, you expect a discussion about such a weighty topic to be something kind of big and heavy like a textbook this is this is tiny it almost it, it looks like a gift book was, was that a very deliberate decision well the decision was to to do something readable so not something that it is for uh, only for activists uh, or to preach to the preachers but something that was that can help everyone to understand that if you pay attention to the issues of the death penalty you may meet a lot of humanity of death uh, some incredible experiences that you never have in your everyday life so it's not just a book about the death penalty it's also a book about what counts in life 
and how a personal life can change. And uh, the worst thing would have been to have a heavy thing that would select people, making people think that this is just for specialists. Instead, this is a book about life, about our life. And well, so as far as uh, accessibility of the book, I think it's your second chapter where it's a list of numbers uh, where, where you you have a number and the significance. Um, how did that come about? Tell us about that chapter and, and what can we glean from those numbers? Well, um, sometimes we do not pay attention uh, to how we are related to the rest of the world. And these numbers give us the proportion. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we think of ourselves just as individuals or just as isolated people in the world, but we are not isolated. So if you know that, per uh, esempio in Italian, <laughs> for example, <laughs> uh, for instance, uh, that uh, the amount, the percentage of people uh, in jail in America is much higher than in Iran. I think that this is good food for thought. Mm -hmm. I think that if you know that 51 is the number of people that were executed just for stealing a horse, mm. well, this is, makes you think, well, was it necessary? Or how, how is change in the world? Or uh, the fact that 76% of executions in the U.S. in 2010 took place in the South three out of four, uh, and so on. Uh, or that uh, mm, the cost of remodeling the building in preparation for the execution is $165,351. Well, it's interesting too. So I think that these numbers, each number says one thing, and, uh, and that uh, uh, the, the percentage of women to men executed in the American colonies in the 17th century was 9 to 20. Uh, that's it. So I think that in one, in few pages, uh, you don't have to work too much, but you can learn much. So it was uh, uh, very nice to, to write this chapter. Uh, one of the numbers that you mentioned is 33% uh, of Boston residents would support the death penalty if Zsokar Tsarnev were convicted of the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, that conviction came just this week, and now there is a lot of debate over execution. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 33%? Well, it's a, it's a good low rate. Yeah, uh, I think it's incredibly interesting to know that even in this case, uh, much more than uh, the majority of the Bostonians would be against mm -hmm. uh, another death. And I think that it, is, uh, it would be a good choice, no death penalty, because I think that uh, it is completely uh, useless to add another death to so much sorrow. It does not give back any life to the people who lost their life and does not give back the limbs to the people who lost an arm or a foot. Or, and, uh, and the strange person who survived among the attackers, uh, who is 19, was probably strongly influenced by his older brother and uh, in an ideology in which uh, terror and death 
uh, in that, those moments could have a meaning. But this culture of death is exactly uh, what must be defeated. So I think that society should resist the only thing that these uh, two young men wanted, that was death. So if uh, the death penalty was uh, applied to this Chechen young man, uh, this would, give, would, would somehow say that he was right. Uh, because he wanted to spread the culture of death. So talk to us about your concept of life row, which is a, a phrase I love. Uh, life row is, uh, is the row where many people lived many, many years, uh, people sentenced to death. And, uh, and the death row uh, is a place where mm, the impression I had when I visited uh, death row my, my first time and other times was that uh, the whole system tends to dehumanize whoever has been sentenced to death so that when the moment of the execution arrives, that uh, death is not killing a human being, but just getting rid of a former human being, and uh, as if you were uh, crushing an insect or getting rid of... Uh, a kangaroo, so uh, uh, of a sick part of of yourself. Uh, but uh, so this is why inside that row there are so many abuses mm. that uh, tend to put pressure on the people, on the individual, to to think themselves that they are garbage. So some violent people are encouraged to be more violent, to be crushed, destroyed, even before. Uh, the execution. But many, many, instead of succumbing to this, uh, resist to the system, uh, starting to defeat the system, just being different. So we could talk about it later in case, but for instance, Nick Harris that spent 22 years on you know, uh, Pennsylvania death row, who actually uh, read more than 6,000 books mm. inside. And when I, I, I tell the story in the book, when I uh, met him and I told him, I'm sorry for what happened to you. It's something very normal to say. And he answered, why? Uh, I'm perfect. I'm alive. And I was a jerk. I was an asshole. I learned a lot about myself. So then... Uh, Inside that row, another friend I had, uh, uh, he was then dismissed because he was innocent. Also, this person was innocent. But uh, spent some years, and he was accused to have killed his own wife. While he was um, uh, wounded, he himself was wounded during the attack, of the, during the robbery at home. But for some years, he was sentenced as a person who had killed his own wife, and you can imagine, he had two children mm -hmm. that were not sure if dad had killed mom. So he was killed many times in these things, but he was innocent. At the end, he was out, and fortunately he has a big love with his children. But uh, he told me that there was a man who did not receive uh, adequate therapy on death row, and he had diabetes. 
So every time he was meeting him from time to time, he had a piece of uh, body missing, uh, let's say a foot uh, amputee because of the diabetes. And that man was saying, don't worry, I'm escaping this place one piece at a time. Wow. And this irony, this capability of understanding the system and being different from the system, to understand even the guards that sometimes are uh, very good, sometimes are sympathetic, sometimes are just scared, sometimes just work, sometimes are sadistic. There are all the kind of. To understand the whole thing uh, gives me uh, the feeling that inside there is an enormous amount of uh, humanity that is thrown out and uh, I think that death row is like the desert uh, in the Bible. It's a place for temptation and a place f and a challenging place. So it's impossible to remain the same person. And many become incredibly sophisticated, refined human beings, which is a disaster uh, if when you kill them at the end of this beautiful pilgrimage where they understand what counts in life. So you, you write that, that most Western countries have done away with the death penalty. And you've traveled in the United States quite a bit for research for this, your own travels. Uh, and at the beginning of the show, you, you had said that this book was a gift to American, to American uh, 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 readers. What can you tell us about what you have seen in your travels in this country? in this country and the resistance that many Americans have in, in ending the death penalty here? Well, I must tell you first that uh, as an Italian, as a European, uh, you, you must imagine that I'm just full of love for America. Uh, not just myths, mm -hmm. but of a deep love. We grew up um, full of gratitude after the Second World War and soon and freedom and so many examples and so many common things. And... Uh, and also Europe, you, as you said, uh, give up, gave up uh, the death penalty after the Second World War. And uh, the reason is not that Europeans were better than Americans, but that Europeans had tasted so much death. Uh, there was the war of the 30 years, the war of the 100 years, the First World War, the Second World War, the Shoah, the extermination of the gypsies, and so on. And so new Europe, uh, new democracies in Europe uh, started to think we must give up death, giving death, and if possible, even war. Uh, and once we discovered this, and it was a pilgrimage also in Europe when uh, France abolished the death penalty 30 years ago, not, not so long ago, it was not easy even for France. Uh, but then we think, our friends, our brothers and sisters, Americans, we must give this gift back because they helped us. And so uh, what I saw in America is first, of course, there is not just one America. And there, is, there are not only Americans, but any individual is a person. And, but uh, of course, uh, it's strong, the feeling for revenge as a, uh, as a form of justice. Uh, retribution as part of justice more than rehabilitation and uh, sometimes uh, social problems 
can find a shortcut uh, in trying to be, let's say, tough on crime through prison. And so the fact that in America there are more than two million people in jail, it's abnormal uh, to a uh, European, but I think it's objectively, it's an incredible question mark uh, about the public education system, about if there are alternatives, social programs and whatever. And so then, uh, but I, we also, and I also found an, in, an incredible amount of people who were committed to, to improve life of the people. So uh, I, I find uh, Americans uh, always somehow as clean people uh, who would like to do the right things and sometimes do not know why they do not do the right things. So um, in the South, uh, I had the feeling, the, the feeling in Texas that it was a beautiful country, but I was resisting to say to myself that I was happy to be there because I could not stay uh, in a restaurant when uh, all the people around had in their own pocket a gun. Mm. For me, it was shocking. Uh, and then, so uh, the culture of weapons. Uh, and then... Uh, and then I discovered that uh, the death penalty is completely unjust in the U.S. It's unjust because uh, if you execute one out of 100 people who commit a murder, what kind of justice is What is the criteria? Or if it is to give back something to the victims of the families and the other 99 families do not receive anything back. Is it true that, for instance, I discovered that about the death penalty, every legend becomes uh, normal truth. Uh, I think that psychologists uh, have, uh, have written thousands of books uh, uh, clarifying that to heal from a problem, it's a process. In the death penalty case, uh, they sell the, as truth the fact that when the person is executing, executed, in that very moment, the healing process becomes perfect for the family that lost some beloved ones, which is false. And it freezes the family members of the victims for years in, in the promise that they will heal on that very moment of the revenge, and they freeze them in the very moment that is the worst moment of their own life when they lost the most beloved ones and then they became crazy of sorrow. And so they, they prevent them from healing. But psychologists do not say anything about this. So I discovered that uh, when you speak with people and help people to think about it, people change, can change. So uh, they can listen to the fact that uh, uh, you add only one death to death. Uh, they can understand the fact that uh, if you, our listeners, could be afraid of uh, tough punishment if we do something simple. So uh, if in Singapore you put chewing gum uh, on under the table 
uh, it's a crime, okay? And then it's so misproportionate the crime, the, the penalty that probably I will not put right. the chewing gum right. under the table. But uh, a person that lives in violence or a drug addict, or alcoholic, or who suffered a cycle of violence in his own life, or a gang member that uses normally death, is not scared by death. You, our listeners, may be scared by death. But the death penalty is not... It's like uh, when you read on a package of uh, cigarettes, these <laughs> cigarettes kill. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, we read that, but many smoke. So there is no deterrent, if, uh, deterrency effect. So I think that uh, uh, I started to see how if I explain to them that the world is changing and that the world loves America, America can find a reason to, to decide to start thinking that can be different. And so, for instance, the, the, the argument that America will never be affected by what happens outside America, because we, America is so mature as a democracy, so proud of itself and so on, and so different as history, is uh, an argument that is totally inconsistent. Uh, the concrete example is about the death penalty. All the good people that were activists uh, against the death penalty were thinking, okay, you are Europeans, mm, but here is different. And practically everyone was thinking, well, they are Californians, they are not Texans, Texas is different. Oh, they are New Yorkers, we are from the South, and so on. So, actually, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States officially stated that it, this is not true, because when, in 2004, I think, they twice said that it is against the Constitution to execute mentally disabled and to execute juveniles at the time of the crime. They were contradicting another sentence of the Supreme Court that was saying that it was okay. And to justify that in the sentence, they wrote, because of the change in the international standard of decency. So officially, America says that the, the change in the world, the international standard of decency that change, are a matter that is fully interests America, affects America. So this is why... So I found many more reasons to, to be in love with America and to interact with Americans and to cooperate in the abolition, for instance, uh, in the in repealing process in states like New Mexico or New Jersey or other American states. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Maria Maruzzi, who's the author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, who's telling us some incredible things about activism within the U.S. and how it's influenced by uh, things that happen in the rest of the world. So uh, you're very involved with the community of Sant'Egidio. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that particular um, activism in Europe and how uh, activists in the U.S. might learn from it? Thank you for this question because it touches a lot of my life. Uh, I was a high school student at the end. I was entering my university uh, when uh, the community of Sant'Egidio started. It was 68, 1970. And you must imagine a group of students who read the gospel, uh, school poor children in the poorest outskirts in shacks, uh, bidonville of the outskirts of Rome, and from there, uh, just being friends with this uh, marginalized world and trying to be passion and compassion. Nothing. And a small group, a family, let's say, community of Sant'Egidio. Uh, so how to change the world, but not one by one, but together. And uh, how not just to say what is good and what is right, but let's try to leave it first. And this has become, uh, over the years, uh, a large movement of uh, people that from Rome, uh, after five years, took the name, strange name Sant'Egidio, Saint E-G-I-D-I-O, which is the name of a small former monastery in Trastevere, a sort of Greenwich village of ancient Rome. It's 2,000 years uh, old Greenwich village of New York and uh, full of restaurants, theaters. But it's also the first place where Christianity started because it, it was the, the place of the harbor. So you must imagine St. Paul and St. Peter uh, arriving in Rome in the Jewish neighborhood because there were people working at the harbor. So, and that, in that place, uh, we found this small church. We, at the beginning, we occupied it as quarters. And then we reopened a small church. And in the evening, there was an evening prayer every evening. That was the only church open in the evening at night yeah, in Rome. Starting from there, Sant'Egidio has become, uh, uh, let's say, uh, something for everyone to change the world by using non-violent means uh, in 73 countries in the world, always with local people, mm. Now, some 60,000 people, all volunteers, nobody paid. So uh, a large international, not just NGO, so it's a group, families of Christians active in ecumenism, interfaith dialogue uh, with the immigrants, with the homeless, with the elderly, try to find human, a human way for the elderly to live in urban societies in the West. And step by step, in the south of the world, let's say, the largest program against AIDS, providing therapy in sub-Saharan Africa free of charge, uh, called DREAM, Drug Resource Enhancement and Against AIDS and Malnutrition, is the acronym. It's in 10 countries, about 1 million people involved in some way, almost 200,000 people in therapy, and uh, always collecting money because we do not have money. And or a program like Bravo, Birth Registration for All versus Oblivion, that is uh, 
uh, how to register the invisible children, those who are born and never register. Mm. And this is a problem that in the world affects about 50 million people a year. So, and this is one of the causes of also of civil wars because you have ethnic groups that do not exist in their own country. Or if a child disappears, is sold, is trafficked, uh, nobody knows that this is happening. So, uh, just to give you an example. And then, Sant'Egidio is a way of being uh, friends of everyone and everyone dignity. So friends of the poor and uh, in the Catholic Church, but uh, open to to dialogue. Uh, and in this way, we were involved also in peacemaking. Uh, so being friend with one poor, then you become friend with a whole country of poor. And the poorest country is the country that has war. And this is how in the 90s, early 90s, we broke the Pisaco di Mozambique after 16 years of civil war. And then I took place uh, in the peace negotiation for Burundi with Mandela. So we stopped the Hutus and Tutsis uh, genocide. And uh, recently in Mindanao, a crisis that lasted for more 40 years, more than 40 years, uh, we put at the table radical Islamist, uh, Islamists and the government. And it's the beginning of an agreement after more than 40 years. On this road, we started to fight for human life also inside death rows and to, to be part and to promote international initiatives to stop the death penalty. But everything started from one letter sent by uh, an American, African-American, young person, Dominic Green, that was on Texas death row. This letter arrived to some Italian newspapers. A friend of mine started to be a pen pal. And from that moment on, we started to be involved in the death penalty issue. But Sant'Egidio is how to be friends of the poor. That's it. And every relationship is always personal. So um, how can American activists build on this example? Well, I think uh, that many uh, American uh, activists uh, started to to work together with us, uh, let's say, I have many friends, I can think of uh, Journey of Hope, uh, Bill Pelkey and many others that uh, it's, um, it's a group that of victims families that crosses America and uh, speaks with the people and as relatives of the victims, they uh, tell how it is possible to give up revenge and be healed or modern victims' families for uh, human rights, uh, people like uh, Representative Randy Cushing in New Hampshire that fought uh, a lot uh, to repeal the death penalty in New Hampshire, but uh, the final vote was even. So mm -hmm. then uh, it was not possible last year to repeal it, but they went just even in New Hampshire. And uh, Or I have... Uh, my friends in Texas, like uh, David Edward or Rick Halperin, uh, they are the founders uh, of the Texas Coalition Against the Death Penalty. They, they, they taught me. They taught me so many things because uh, they have always been minorities, uh, like Don Quixote, working and against the uh, the windmills. Mm -hmm. But uh, now I think 
that there is a different feeling. So with them, I could enjoy and experience from 2007 to now uh, almost one abolition, the abolition of the death penalty in one state per year, almost. So it was not happening since the 70s. Mm. So many things are changing. And, uh, and then also I became so f close friend with Sister Helen Prejean, uh, the, the, the real nun of dead mal walking. Right. And uh, a great woman, uh, full of irony, uh, a fighter, and uh, it's a <laughs> uh, she she used to to use a lot uh, the fax machine before emails, and we were swapping uh, faxes, and she used to sketch something on the on the pieces of paper, and then once I did the same, and then I said, uh, well, uh, I was flying very much, and she was calling me Flying Mario, and, and, uh, and then uh, at a certain point, uh, I was writing a simple thing. Uh, Helen, you and me are, uh, many, of, many people look at us as if we were um, heroes of uh, human rights, but, but actually we do it just because we we think that's the only right thing to do, and uh, we do not feel special. But you, you and I—it uh, was by uh, around Christmas. You and I are like uh, the the cow and the donkey at the nativity. So we something special happens uh, around us. We give a small contribution. Probably, if we were not there, these things could not happen. Jesus could not could freeze. But we are just the donkey and uh, and the cow. And then uh, I said, "You, I'm the flying donkey, and you are the holy cow." <laughs> and then she answered, "Well, it's not so nice to say to a nun that you are a, a holy cow, so you are a flying ass." <laughs> <laughs> so this is the what my American friends. We've been talking with Mario Maratiti, and you can find his book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, in stores right now. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. And don't forget, PW Insider launches on September 14th. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 